Today's episode is sponsored by Feuds and Favors, a strategy card game for two to four players that plays in 30 to 60 minutes. In Feuds and Favors, you'll gather and exchange favors to enlist the help of powerful nobles, but the tide of battle is constantly shifting, so keep your wits and sword sharp to become the first to collect seven trophies and earn the title of Paramount Legion. The game has been called the Medieval Tournament in a Box and is a true battle of the ages. So be sure to head on over to Kickstarter and check out Feuds and Favors right now. And if you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about route building. What does it look like to design a game where you got some pieces on one side and uh, you build some routes and uh, put the pieces on the other side. And then whoever does it the best, they win. And uh, this is a game. these are games like Ticket to Ride, Brass, Terra Mystica, Power Grid, and a whole bunch of games from uh, Mr. Ted Allspock from Bezier Games. Ted, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, really glad to have you here. So your first game way back in 05, 06, sometime you know, way back when, before the, the dawn of the new games, I guess. I think 2010 is like... When a lot of the, a lot of gaming shifted, and so this is like pre that pre this whole renaissance of gaming. You've been designing yeah. these games and publishing these games for a while, and so you were just like the perfect person to have on the show to talk about route building and how to how to design one of these games. Sure. And I'm really excited to talk to you. But before we get into that, remind people who you are, how you get into game design, game publishing, all that kind of thing. Sure. Well, I'm Ted Osbach. I've been um, designing games for uh, most of my life and playing them for all of my life, I guess. And uh, professionally doing it now for the last uh, 15 plus years. And uh, I've designed games like um, Suburbia, um, One Night Ultimate Werewolf, Castles of Mad King Ludwig, and uh, just a whole bunch of other games um, that I have done, including some of the ones we'll talk about. They're the, the actual rough building games that we'll probably be talking about uh, later. And then I also run a company called Bezier Games. And we publish a lot of my games as well as other people's games. We publish games from lots of other designers like uh, Tom Lehman and um, uh, Freedom and Freeze and all sorts of things. Yeah, awesome. All right, let's just uh, let's dive right in. When we say route building, let's get a good working definition. What does that mean exactly? So, uh, you know, I think it probably means different things to different people. Um, you know, it's, it's how do you get from here to there, I think is probably the easiest way to think of that. Um, you've got two different things, uh, whether you're, it's, it's stations or it's, it's two different locations. And, you know, what is the way that you're going to get there from here to there? And is it a straight shot? Are you stopping at other points along the way? Um, kind of, kind of what is the, the method of, of, of transport between those two different locations? And games do that in a lot of different ways. I think most people are probably familiar with train games as being the most common sort of thing. And 
I think Ticket to Ride is probably the, the best example of just looking at that and going, oh, well, you see all those little tracks that are all over the board already, even before you start playing, uh, even if you have, before you've done anything, you can kind of see it already there that as you put your trains down, you're building routes between all those different cities on the US map in the base game, for instance. Yeah, and it's really cool how route building can either be the whole game, like that one mechanism, like in Ticket to Ride, is just building routes and then trying to do that better than the other players. But it can also be a really cool mechanism in a game that does other things as well, whether you're doing a pickup and deliver and you're trying to get things from one place to another and so you have to build routes to do that. Uh, or there's all sorts of really cool ways that you can kind of mesh route building with uh, other other mechanisms and, and do it in different ways. So I want to chat about that here in just a minute. But before we get into that, why do you think so many people are drawn to these games. Several of the games I've mentioned just a moment ago are in the top 50 games of all time on Board Game Geek. People love these games. They sell really well. There's a lot of them that are really, really well known. Why is that? What is it about these games that just draws people in? Yeah, I think it has to do a lot with the, the building aspect. You know, you are building from one thing to another. You're, you, you know, it's not just about connecting. You're usually putting something on the board or uh, laying something down that creates something that was not there before. And when you're done and you look at it, you're like, wow, you know, it's because we played the game that the board looks like this. It would not look like this if anyone else had played at any other time except for right now. And it's kind of, there is something intrinsically um, compelling about that sort of creation that you're doing while you're playing a game. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I've talked to several designers about various topics. And that actually, that same idea keeps coming up over and over again. The idea that uh, you can build something and you, you know, you start the game with nothing. And by the end, you know, an hour or two hours later, you have something in front of you that you have created that would not be there. Like you said, if, if we hadn't played this game and it's not going to be the same uh, ever again, probably, you know, we get to build it in different ways. I think just kind of naturally as humans, we love to create, we love to build. And so if you can do that in game form, it, uh, it tends to to do pretty well. Now, from a design standpoint, though, like like I said in the intro, you've been doing this for a while. Back in 05, you know, you had your first game that was a route building game, and I'll talk about that in a minute. So what do you think makes designers want to create these games? Is it just because we have a tendency to play to it, to ride, and go, oh, I could do better than that? Or like, what is it about designing that draws, you know, designers in? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure sure Alan Moon likes to hear that, yeah, we you look at look at Ticket or I go, yeah, I could do better than that. <laughs> um, uh, probably not. Um, no, I think, well, part of it is, you know, there are so many of those games that we played. And so you have that experience and that shared experience of, and it's, it seems, um, like something that people are drawn to be really also, it's kind of easy. It kind of makes sense. You're like, well, I have to connect these two points in some way. And the, all the, the whole wide variety of ways that you can do that in all the different games that have come out over the last, you know, 20, 30 years is, is pretty amazing. And I think for designers, you were just looking for something unique and different to do. You know, I, I, I couldn't, I, I would not have described like some of the games like Maglev Metro is probably the most recent route building game that I've done. I wouldn't call it a route building game. I'd actually call it an engine building game more than I would a route building game. But route building is, of course, a really important part of it. Um, and so in my, in my head, in fact, when you first suggested route building, I was like, well, yeah, I guess I could do that. And I, in my brain, I was not even thinking that this game that I've been working on for years and we're doing expansions for is a route building game, but it is. And that's, that's when people look at it, at least initially, that's, that's what they're thinking. But I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is really an engine building game that has this route building thing on the side, which is kind of interesting, you know, that it's just one of those mechanics or, or themes that's kind of, it's not even tacked on. It's just, it's just intrinsically part of it, but it's not in my in my my designer head, it's not the main part. The main part for me is the engine building part. You know, when you're actually trying to enhance your your engine and, and make it better. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I definitely want to dive into Maglev Metro in a, in a much deeper way here in just a minute. But before we get kind of on the specifics, let's stay a little bit general. Tell me what you think are like the common, I don't want to say tropes necessarily, but like the common things that you see in route building games where when people look at a game just laid out on a table, they go, oh, that's a route building game. What are some of those like main pillars of, of these kinds of games? Well, I think thematically uh, there, there's transportation, whether it's medieval or current uh, there's there's moving some sort of people or goods or something from point A to point B. Um, you know, I think of medieval merchant. Um, I'm not sure if you played that. That's kind of uh, I think of that as like the classic route building game because that's really all you're doing is you just are basically picking routes um, throughout that entire game. And uh, the, the 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 longer the route, uh, the more points you're going to get, but also the more money it costs you to build that route. And um, it's, it's called Medieval Merchant. It's really interesting. The original game, from what I understand, was supposed to be a game about uh, airlines and airline hubs. And they changed the, the, the publisher changed the theme because they thought no one would want to play that. And uh, they turned it into a medieval trading game in Germany where you're setting up tra- trade routes throughout you know, medieval Germany. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really how did you get you know, from one point to another. And in that particular game, they've got this ridiculous number of lines all over the board. Um, and the lines are bisected by numbers telling you kind of how far it is, which is really the cost, you know, how much it costs to get from one point to another um, like that. And so I think that's that's one way when you look at it and you go, that's absolutely route building because that's all you do in the game. Um, even Ticket to Ride, when I look at that, I'm not, I, yes, it's, it's clearly it's route building because you're putting trains down, but it's also a set collection. You know, you're in order to do that, you're having to figure out, you know, grabbing all those cards and getting the right cards and, and you know, kind of watching what your opponents are doing, that sort of thing. So all route building is a, is a very big part of it. There's also lots of other little things going on. There's very few, I think, pure route building games and medieval merchants, the only one I can think of that, that really, really encompasses that's, that's all you do during the game. Yeah, now why do you suppose that is? Why do you think that most of the time these games have other factors in there, whether it is set collection, pick up and deliver, there's always, you know, typically something else meshed in there. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that's that's the case with most mechanics. So you're not going to see, you know, a trick-taking game by itself is just kind of boring. You know, if you're like, all right, it's just trick-taking. There's always, you know, something extra thrown in to make kind of, kind of give it that extra oomph. Um, and I think with route building, it just lends itself to so many possibilities. Um, the idea that it's, you know, pick up and deliver, uh, that it is, like I said before, like possibly engine building. Um, in the, the game, the, the very first game I did, Seismic, um, it's actually about um, creating these highways in a part of California that's known for earthquakes. And you're trying to complete as many roads as possible, make them as long as possible before earthquakes hit and destroy some of those roads. Uh, but still, the, the main point is the route building part. The, the possible for disaster, possibility for disaster is always kind of on the edge of that. Um, but it's, it's kind of exciting. And again, it's, it's, again, you look at that thing at the end of when you're done and you see all these really cool highways that are going from point A to point B, um, and kind of how they go from different spokes and they, they kind of fan out. And it's really interesting uh, what you end up with. Gotcha. All right, let's switch gears and start talking about some of your games and other games more specifically. Let's stay on seismic. Like I said, this one came out 05, 06. And so this was kind of before a lot of other things have changed the gaming hobby, the gaming industry. And so tell me about that one. Were you living in California? Did you experience an earthquake? Did you need to design a game to cope and deal with your trauma? Tell me, <laughs> tell me about that game, like from a Genesis standpoint, and then you know how you kind of brought the, the mechanisms and brought the game together. 
Yeah, so I was. I was living in Northern California. Um, I actually had, I was not there for the 89 quake or uh, the early 90s LA quake. So I wasn't there for the big quakes, but earthquakes are kind of a regular thing, really minor ones. And by minor, I mean, I think they would freak anyone out who's not used to it. But, you know, every once in a while, you'll hear a little bit of a boom. And sometimes you'll feel like, um, like if you've been on a cruise ship and you kind of like, hey, something just moved a little bit. Oh, we must still be on the ocean. Well, that's the sort of thing you feel with a little bit of an earthquake. Um, and there's been some bigger ones and some smaller ones and whatever, but it's never been, it was never traumatic. And once you're in California long enough, I was there about 20 years, you kind of don't really think about it anymore. You, the only reason I ever thought about it was whenever we would buy furniture at Ikea or something, it always comes with those little bat, those little things to attach to your wall, you know, in case of, in case of an earthquake, so it doesn't fall over. Uh, but I never really, it wasn't like uh, this constant presence. I don't think it really is a constant presence on most people's minds who live there. But um, that said, um, I was looking for like kind of an interesting um, angle on a, <clears throat> what I was considering actually a highway building game at that point. I was like, oh, you know, people have done these train games, but no one's ever done a cool highway game. And so I wanted to build a, a game about highways. And um, as I was working on the game, the idea that, well, what if you're doing this in the middle of earthquake country where they're constantly are always concerned that at any, t- at any time an earthquake may come along and destroy these sections of roads you're building, which seems a little ridiculous, but it was a lot of fun. And I think it's uh, kind of one of those, those cool little things um, that uh, it was easily overlooked uh, for the time when it was published um, there. Um, yeah, it's a hexagonal based game. Um, there's, there's hexagons that have different types of highway shapes on them and some cross over each other. Some are just curves or straights. And um, there's little stop sign tiles that give you points whenever you come to an intersection. And, uh, you know, you're kind of turning over tiles, kind of Carcassonne style-ish, uh, where you have a couple to choose from. Uh, though in this case, as opposed to just the first one you turn over, you have to place. Uh, but then if you turn over one that had an earthquake on it, uh, earthquakes would gravitate to wherever you've built the most road. Um, basically coming out from a straight line from the center point, which I know it's probably not the most accurate thematically because I don't think earthquakes care where you build a road, but let's just say that they did for the sake of the game, and that's what happened. So you were trying to make these long, winding highways that didn't come out from a straight line from the center of the of the town, uh, possibly with the game, um, because when an earthquake hit, it's going to go for the longest spike, basically, or a spoke that comes out directly from the town. Uh, and uh, you know, as you're building roads, you're basically claiming them, you're putting cubes on them to claim them. And other people are doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, very, very basic game. You know, turn over a tile, place it, uh, place a cube if you haven't. You um, can think of it almost as the road section of Carcassonne um, in, in a way. A little bit more, more than that. But that's the same sort of idea behind it. Gotcha. Now, is this a game you've thought about maybe bringing back, maybe doing a, a new version, retheming in some way, but putting it back into uh, into the world? No, I, you know, actually, I, I actually haven't. Um, originally, it was a two-player game. Um, and when I went, I, I took this with me. This was on my 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 first uh, visit to Gen Con in probably 2005 or so. I took this and some other games with me, and I shopped them around to publishers. And uh, Atlas Games saw this, and they absolutely fell in love with it, and they wanted to publish it. And they almost published it as is, which was shocking to me because I had heard that that doesn't normally happen. Like, you'll shop around a game, and the publisher will take it, and then they will change it and they'll do some stuff to it and they'll put it out. But they did pretty much it exactly as I had it in everything down to the tiny little baby cubes, because that's all I could find at the time. I couldn't find even regular 10 millimeter cubes. These are like six millimeter, tiny little ridiculous size cubes. 
um, really, really basic artwork. And they were like, you know what, this is, this is, this is good as this. We're, we're just going to sell it this way. And I was kind of like, okay, you guys are the publisher. Things have changed, Ted. Things um, have changed. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you look at the art of Seismic, you'll see that it is, it is very, very bare bones. Um, that is all uh, classic Ted Alsbach art. There's no graphic designer involved whatsoever. Uh, there should have been. I wish there had been. But at the time, they thought it was fine. So, you know, um, kind, kind of interesting. So anyway, they, they, they took the game. They, they ran with it. Um, I suggested it should probably stay at just two player, but they said it could play with four. And I said, well, technically, yes, it can, but it's better at two. Um, but um, you know, since then, as a publisher, I've learned that uh, about 90% of games get played with their maximum player count the first time they're played. And that is what uh, influences people's experiences. And if your game is not great at the maximum player count, um, you could be just asking yourself for a lot of uh, issues down the road or just people just not interested in the game because they've heard bad things about it. And uh, I did not know this at the time. In fact, it took me quite a long time to learn that. But uh, eventually we did. And that's one of the things that at Bezier Games, we're really, really careful. And we would look at that player count number. We make sure that that maximum number that the game is optimized and that you're going to have a great time at that top player count. You know, theoretically, it might be able to support more, but we want to make sure that whatever the, the big number is, it's going to play well because that first play of the game is probably going to be at that high player count. And uh, we want that to be a really, really good experience. And unfortunately, Seismic at four players, which is the maximum player count, it's not a great experience. It's, it's a little chaotic. Um, you know, I mean, it's Game Brother Earthquake, so you expect some chaos, I guess. But uh, with a two player game, it's very strategic. Um, and there's there's a lot more, I think, thought that you can put into what you're doing and building. Uh, once you get to three and four players, it kind of loses a little of that. So that's a little sad. But that's one of those things as a game designer uh, and as a publisher now that I have learned. Yeah, absolutely. And you actually gave that same advice several years ago when you were on the show the first time. And it's it's stuck in my head. And it's something that I have told so many designers over the years. I've, I've gone back to that episode and said, hey, well, here's here's a, a great designer, a great publisher. This was his advice. I want to pass it on to you because it's going to save you a headache. And it's going to, one, probably make your game cheaper because you're not going up to five or six players, yeah. you know, extra components. But two, it's going to probably lead to your games getting played more often because they're getting played at the optimal player count, not just at the, oh yeah, it could be player count. Yes. And uh, that's going to have lead to better experiences. And so, yeah, I'm glad you reiter reiterated that point that's because it funny. is so vital. I, 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 and I, it's funny, I should have gone and listened to that uh, previous uh, interview because I don't want to repeat myself too much, but, but I still, obviously I felt strong then. I don't know when that was, but I felt strong about it then. I still feel very strong about it now. Uh, got to have that great first first time experience, and with that maximum player count, it's just got to be it's got to be super tight and and really really good. Um, so I'm I, I definitely encourage all designers out there to be looking at that. And you know that's you know they always say like when you're designing something, you design something awesome, and then you take out all the stuff that doesn't need to be there. And a lot of times, what doesn't need to be there is that you know fifth or sixth player. Um, as much as people will say, oh, I really want a fifth five player game. Well, maybe it's not meant to be five players maybe it's a great awesome four-player game but it's only a good five-player game and then you have to make that decision and sometimes that can be hard but um as a publisher and as a designer i would rather err on the side of the great experience if possible yeah 100 percent. and what's the the line from jurassic park from jeff goldblum we y'all only talked about if you could and you never stopped to, to ask if you should yeah. i think that's that's the same thing just because you could go up to five or go or even up to three or up to four maybe it's a really good two-player game it doesn't mean you should. And so having just that uh, 
that reality check and saying, you know, this is a great two player game. It's fine with three, but it's really two. And then running with it because, I mean, there are plenty of games on the market. If people want to play at five or six that are really good games at five or six. Mm-hmm. And so to not feel like, oh, I'm going to you know fit into this this niche that, that there's no other games. No, there's lots of games. And so fill fill whatever niche is the best fit for your game and then you know later down the road if you want to add an expansion that maybe add some things or whatever okay fine but at, at the beginning just do the best you can yeah i i totally agree i think that is that's yeah make the game kind of takes over during the designing process um it kind of becomes its own thing at least to me um and it it becomes the game it wants to be um based on your your play testing and your designing and iterating and uh it it, it doesn't always want to be a five or six player game even if you want it to be that um, so we've got, got to listen to your game and what it tells you. No, no doubt. All right, let's uh, let's keep talking about some of your games. Let's go to Whistle Stop, which is a really interesting game to me. I love the combos that can be created and, and how seemingly broken sometimes they are. Like you have these things that happen with yeah. the, the, the building of the routes and whatnot. And you're like, whoa, shoot, that's that's kind of crazy. And it's it's not uh, a broken part of the game. It's actually a feature, not a bug. Yeah. And so tell me about that game. And then let's just kind of talk about the design process for that one. I know that's, that's not one of your designs. That's from Scott Caputo. Yeah. And so tell me, tell me about that one in general. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, Scott Caputo, a friend of mine um, it, it from the Bay area um, presented the game to me. And I think it was something I don't remember. I'm going to get this wrong, but it was something about someone like Sherpas on the mountain taking things back and forth or something. I don't know what it was, but it, it was not, it was not trained, but it, it seemed to me like right away, as soon as you put down, I'm like, well, oh, that's a train game. Um, and the, the idea behind it is that you're kind of, uh, they, they've connected, they've, they've driven the golden spike in, they've connected east and west, and now it's time for you to fill in all that space in between there. Instead of just a single line, you know, railroad that's going through, you want to fill in all that untamed country with, with railroads and, and new towns and, and new places. And, so, you know, new new companies, new railroad companies are, are coming up and there's all sorts of resources available and you want to kind of harness that and uh, you want to be the first. But of course you have competitors because everyone's trying to do the same sort of thing. So everyone is building their railroad lines out there. And um, one of the really interesting things about uh, Whistle Stop is I think of it now in hindsight because we, we published Whistle Mountain as a great prequel to Whistle Mountain. And this is... Um, I want to mention this. Uh, Loopler was on your show talking about worker placement, and uh, Whistle Stop is actually a worker placement game too. Um, it's it's not really just a route building game. Um, it looks like route building because you got train tracks and stuff. But what you're really doing is you're getting your trains to places where they can pick up resources, and then do uh, they go to other spots where they do cool things with them. You just happen to be doing it along a route. Um, so it is it's kind of worker placement, but with a very limiting factor. And uh, I, I was listening to, to Luke Laurie's um, interview with you, and he was saying about one of the things he found really interesting about worker placement was limiting factors where, you know, there's certain things that you can't do that kind of let you, well, if I have to do this, I only get this. But if I do this, I can only get this. And you kind of have to make tougher decisions as opposed to, well, this just gets me the most stuff. I'll just go there. And so, uh, you know, what, what Whistle Stop is, it's a, it's a worker placement game that uses route building as the worker mechanic, your, your trains are workers, and they're going off to those different stops to pick up resources. They're going to other stops to build things. And uh, you know, if, if it was, if you thought of it as a worker placement game, we totally changed the theme and just said you have to go from here to here and here to here. This is how you can get to those places. Um, we could call it a worker placement game, and probably people wouldn't be that surprised. Yeah, and one of the things I love about that game and then just games like this in general is the tension they create of those decisions of okay. 
do I have enough time? Is there enough times or enough rounds or whatever left in the game for me to go this long route that gets me a bunch of points? Or should I go the short, shorter routes that I'm more guaranteed to, to, to hit, to get, uh, and you know, maybe I'm only going to get two points versus eight points, but I'm going to get guaranteed a couple of those. And so, and so I love that tension. So talk to me about that and how you kind of balance that tension from a game design perspective so that players are getting those interesting choices. It's not just obvious. Oh, okay. The long one is always best. You always have enough time, whatever, do that one because the other ones don't you know, matter enough. So tell me about that. So I, I think with, uh, with, with the stop is, is a great example of that. So you always have, there's this, this goal on the, the far edge of the board is kind of where your trains go and then they, they stop and you retire them. And when you retire them, you kind of get a special little extra bonus for doing so. And by going there, you can get a lot of points by just, going as quick as possible, taking as few stops as possible to get from one side of the board to the other and getting that, that, that bonus. But by doing so, you're missing out on you know, picking up resources. You're missing out on buying stock in some of the, the different companies that are there, doing some of the other things that you can do in the game to, to get points. But you are getting over there quickly, and that actually is a game end trigger. And the more trains that are over there, the sooner the game will end. As soon as someone gets all of their trains over there, that triggers the end of the game instantly. So you can kind of rush that ending. But meanwhile, other people will be doing things like picking up stock and getting majorities and companies, and they're going to get big bonuses for that. Uh, they're going to be gathering resources, allowing them to build things that you can't build because you were too busy you know, zipping over. So there, that's kind of where the balance in Whistle Stop comes in, which is, do I want to take my time, kind of meander around, picking up things, building things, uh, doing these other activities? Or do I want to race for the end to get that that one time bonus for each of these trains, knowing that's going to bring the game to an end? But you know, can I get enough points by doing that quickly before all these other people who are taking their time doing these things can build up their their own engines and their own ways of doing it? And I think you know you mentioned earlier about uh, it. Sometimes it seems broken, and that's that's really kind of intentional. We we went back and forth. Uh, myself and Scott went back back and forth on this about how to make that you know feel compelling, and we pretty much sided with there. There really is no there. There's no oh, we're going to say you can't do this this particular thing because it's too powerful. Instead, we're going to let you do those things that seem too powerful, but we're going to let everyone else know that you that you can do those things. And when someone else sees you do that, they're going to go, oh my gosh, he just went from this station to this station to this station, picked up resources, went over there, got a bunch of extra stuff that gave him an extra turn. Went over there, did that, got more resources, went right back, did that same thing. That doesn't seem fair. But then again, they could do the same thing. They just hadn't seen it done yet or thought of it yet. And it does feel like, wow, I've got this amazing super combo. And if you're the first one to discover it, it's incredibly satisfying. Um, you know, even if other people take advantage of it later, the, because you're the first one there, it could be really, really just like, oh, this is fantastic. Look what I've done. Yeah, anytime you get to prove beyond all doubt that you're smarter than your friends, yes. it's a it's a cool moment. It's a fun moment, and like you said, even if they do it later, it's like, well, yeah, but I did it first. And even if you do it better, it's okay, I did yeah. it first. And so you know, you just you just know I'm smarter than you, and this game proves it. And so anytime a game can do that, I think it uh, it does pretty well. But then also going back to what you're saying, as far as like players having the ability to uh, trigger the end of the game, I think that's very interesting. When when the game says. Okay, we don't know how many rounds this is going to last. We don't know how many turns it's going to last. Here are the end game triggers, and maybe you have some things mm-hmm. built in to force the game to end, just in yeah. case you have all these min maxers out there. They're trying to like you know do seventeen extra turns, but it's like okay, the game should have been over an hour ago. But uh, I like the idea that the players can adjust that because it creates a very interesting dynamic play experience. Because you have Bob over here who's literally just trying to speed up the, the end of the game. And he's doing all these things. You're like, Bob, that's not efficient. He's like, I don't care. I'm gonna, 
I think I have enough points to win. Uh-huh. And so I'm going to do everything I can to speed that up versus other people who are like, you know, taking their time and moving this and doing that. And they're, you know, they're not worried about the end game trigger. They're just trying to accumulate as many points as possible. And it creates these very interesting uh, different strategies. And so tell me a little bit more about that as far as like anything you've learned over the years, as far as designing games with that kind of uh, mechanism in, in play, as far as like the players determining the end game. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's uh, that leads me right into that whole thing of whistle, whistle stop being a prequel to Whistle Mountain. Whistle Mountain um, is people would define that as a worker placement game, and I was saying before that Whistle Stop is kind of a, a secret, um, you know, uh, worker placement game. Well, Whistle Mountain is the same sort of thing, and it has that same sort of ending. Now, you don't have a route there in the traditional sense, but you kind of do because you're building up these scaffolds, which are kind of a route, and that that's the only places you're allowed to put your your well. We call them workers. They're not really workers in the worker placement sense, but you're, you're little meeple guys uh, where you want to rescue them. The higher they go, the more bonuses they get, the more points they get. But the higher you go, also the, the sooner you're going to be ending the game. And you can kind of think of, if you think of, of Whistle Stop and you turned it sideways uh, and it was vertical instead of horizontal, um, yes, they look entirely different in terms of one has train tracks and one has these, these things. But the, essentially, there's a lot of similarities between the two. Um, and it's really interesting. They have that same, you can rush the end. Um, by building up very, very high, you build these uh, machines really high. You once you do that, I think it's like six times the game just comes to an end um, because you're, you've knocked all the people out of the barracks in, in Whistle Mountain. Uh, once you build track across the, the the entire board in Whistle Stop, you can rush all your trains over to the end there and also do the end. And there's 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 a lot of these uh, interesting similarities, and that's one of the reasons. This is this is a big discussion that we had with with Scott that he was not a fan of at the time, that we wanted to make Whistle Mountain a sequel to Whistle Stop because not only did we make it a thematic sequel, but we made it a mechanical sequel as well because you also can do these crazy, crazy combinations with things uh, in Whistle, Whistle Mountain that you shouldn't be able to do. At least you're thinking, you know, it's one of those things you have to look in the rules. You're like, am I allowed to do this? You know, is this, is this am I cheating? Uh, hold on, let me just check on, make sure I'm allowed to do this before I go ahead and take my turn, um, which is kind of neat. Yeah, that's super cool. All right, let's keep talking about Whistle Stop and Whistle Mountain. Uh, a lot of games in this category use hexes. A lot of them use squares as far as like the grids and whatnot. Some of them, like Ticket to Ride and others, just kind of have a map and then a whole bunch of lines. And so it's it's kind of you know amorphous as far as like the, the shapes that are being made. Tell me your thoughts on, on, on those things as far as like, am I going to use hexes? Am I going to use squares? Am I just going to use lines that go to different points and, and go in different angles and directions and things like that? What should I be thinking as a designer on when to use each one of those? You know, I, I think it, it depends on what your, your end goals are. And it's it's amazing the number of choices that you have from hexes to squares. It's four-sided versus six-sided, but what it really is is three versus five. Um, and that's because that's the, the ways you can go once you've entered a hex from one side and you've entered a square from one side. And, you know, you've either three times as many options or five times as many options. And five times feels immensely more satisfying in a lot of ways. Um, so, um you know, as your train games tend to almost always be um, uh, hex based because they give you a lot of flexibility in terms of making you know where you want your curves to go and, and that sort of thing. Um, there's a few, and uh, well, I know I have a game Maglev Metro, but there's the original Metro that Dirk Ken designed. That's probably 20 years old now, uh, which actually is just it's just uh, squares, and it's it's you know you're connecting one point to another. That, that would also be another great example of just a route building game. That's all that Metro is, is route building um, across there. But it does give you, um, you know, less possibilities of what you can do, which I think could be a good thing because it can 
um, keep people focused and that a little less AP possibly because now you have three decisions instead of five decisions as far as where you're going to come out of a, you know, that particular tile that you've laid down. Um, so that, that part could be good because it simplifies things down. But at the same time, it does, it limits what you can do both as a designer as a player in terms of making, you know, the, the end result as interesting and kind of as, as fluid as possible for building, you know, again, from one uh, spot to another. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then thinking about like not using a grid per se. So like you said, squares, you now have three options. Uh, hexes, you have five. But in a game like Ticket to Ride, you might have one, two, three. I mean, you could, it's going to yeah. change depending on which point uh, on the map that you are. And so you can adjust that as a designer and you can kind of create some points that have a ton of different options and maybe are, are a little more valuable versus other routes that maybe don't have as many points. But, you know, you can and you can adjust the, the scoring and, and different things like that based on on those numbers as well. So I guess, it, yeah, like you're saying, it just depends on what kind of game do you want to make and mm -hmm. um, what's the point of the route? How do you make the route? I think all that is something to to, to think about. And if, you, if you think about it, the, the, le the least complex games, um, like Carcassonne, is a, it's square-based tile lane because it does give you fewer options. If Carcassonne was hex-based, it would still work, but it would be a much more complex game um, with all those different options that you would have for expanding your, your castle walls or your roads or your farms. Um, it's just, it's, it's very interesting. Like, you know, what type of game are you trying to make? How, how deep do you want the game to be? What kind of players are you looking for? Um, that's, those are kind of some of the considerations when I did suburbia original, the original version of suburbia was square tiles. And I did that mainly because I wanted to mimic SimCity, which felt always very, felt very square to me. Uh, when I did that thing and I know you're, you're a fan of, uh, uh Stephen King's advice on the whole, put it aside for a while and then uh, bring it back later and oh, yeah. when you bring it back later uh you're you're just rejuvenated and you, you're doing more with it you're going to make it better uh, that sort of thing and uh i did that with suburbia and i came back and for whatever reason i was like you know what if i tried hexes instead of squares and wow it, the game got so much better and so much more interesting as a result um and so yeah that's the the two uh, and you can't there really aren't any other good shapes that work that way i guess triangles do technically but you don't see that very often. Um, but, you know, you, you can't have anything that's much more complex than that without getting into multiple types of shapes and then end up with, with weird gaps and, and things. Oh, yeah. And I'm a huge fan of just take a break, let your mind rest. Now, it's hard sometimes, especially if you're a publisher and you've got deadlines, you've got timelines to hit, like in Kickstarter project coming up. Like, it's hard. Oh, I yeah. get that. But there's so much value in taking two weeks, a month, however long off, because when you come back, you're going to see things from totally new angles. You're going to see things you hadn't noticed before. And you're going to see things that, you know, you thought were really, really good until you took a month off and you come back, you go, wow, that's, that's not any good at all. And so it's so nice to come in with new eyes Absolutely. and see that kind of stuff. Um, all right. So let's talk about like blocking. So a lot of these games, you're able to block your opponents through the routes that you take. You're able to cut them off. You're able to use the routes before they can, and so now you score, or and, and they can't. And But then some games, you can borrow other people's routes. You can go right through their their train stations and things like that. So tell me what I should be thinking about from a design standpoint about uh, as far as, like, do I use blocking or do I not? What should I be thinking? Yeah, so blocking to me always feels like there, there's a race involved. Um, you know, Age of Steam is a, is a good classic example of that, of, you know, I see these cities on the board. I know that, you know, being, you can see the cubes early on, kind of where things are going to end up once you play the game enough. And you're like, I need to connect here to here. The most important thing I have to do is connect these two cities. If I don't connect these two cities first, someone else is going to do it. I'm going to have to go around and it's going to wreck my plan. So now I'm, I'm kind of forced as a player, 
maybe not forced, but I'm directed as a player to doing a particular action to be as efficient as possible based on the, the plans that I've come up with. Um, and so I think that's that's where blocking can be really useful because it makes people think, okay, I've got to get this done first. Here's kind of the, the order of things that have to happen in order for me to be able to do that. Um, when you don't have blocking, you give players the freedom of just, well, I'll do that when I, I don't need to do it right now um, because, hey, uh, I, I still can, you know, if, if you could do multiple tracks over the exact same um, hexes in Age of Steam, there would be a lot less tension in the game. I think that game is really, I'll, a lot of it is about being there first, um, you know, do, building the or urbanizing the the town into the city you want first, uh, you know, getting the cube you want first. Um, and it's this this weird race thing that's constantly going on. And for route building, having blocking as a mechanism at all really encourages that race aspect. Once you take that away, that aspect is no longer there. And so you've got to find something else to kind of fill that void of, you know, what is compelling? Why should I why shouldn't I just do something else while they're doing these things if there's no particular rush and the game has a timer maybe or, or something else? But blocking kind of forces you into uh, action right away. So I think that's, that's where uh, route blocking um, in general uh, I think would be really useful because it, it provides like instant tension. Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to what we were saying just a, a few minutes ago as far as creating tension in the game. It's a wonderful way. And it's also really cool when you can use this tension in, in different ways. So for instance, one of my favorite games is Ticket to Ride Marklin. And what I love about that one is that you have these passengers that are worth different points, but you have to be the first person to like pass through a certain station uh, or, or a certain location to be able to pick up the passenger. Like, and so there's a tension because there's, you know, a finite number of these people on the board. And so you're trying to, you know, take your route through that area to pick them up first. But then what if your cards don't go through that area? Well, now you have to make a choice. Do I, you know? And so it's, again, it's just interesting choices yeah. to be made. Yeah, I think Mark Markland is great because it, it took what was, you know, turn in taxis was kind of, that's 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 what turn in taxis is all about, is, is getting there first, picking up that that high-valued chip before anyone else. And Markland has that kind of embedded within the Ticket to Ride framework, which is really interesting. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's switch gears and let's talk about Maglev Metro. Talk about that one just in general, and then let's get into the actual like specifics of the game design. Okay, so, so Maglev Metro came, came from uh, just what I was just saying just now about route blocking is that I wanted to do a train game that did not have to have route blocking, that you would just be able to freely go, that you weren't, they didn't have that pressure um, there. You still have to make a game and something compelling about it, but I didn't want that pressure. And, uh, you know, but looking at different things, different options, um, the very, very early in the process, I would say that first day, second day of working, it was, you know what, if we can figure out how to do transparent tiles, uh, that have um, lines on them, whether it's train tracks or, or subway lines. Um, and if I can make that work um, with, with multiple players, then this could be something like really no one else has really ever played before because there really isn't anything else like that out there that lets you do kind of like multiple lines in the same spot and let, have multiple players go from one place to another um, as far as defining. Like, it doesn't really matter that you happen to get there first. It, it does in the game because of other things, but it certainly doesn't block me from doing the exact same thing. Uh, and so you'll see some people mirror their tracks, you know, from uh, two or three different stations, they'll follow the exact same route and that's okay. Um, and to me, that was really, a, a, really an interesting challenge, both as a publisher knowing that, huh, I have to make sure that this can actually be produced also to a designer as in, well, how am I even going to mock this stuff up? Um, and so that that was kind of my first step was, is this even possible? And so I, I 
ordered myself some transparency sheets uh, that would work with a color laser printer, printed uh, on them, uh, painfully cut out little hexes on my transparency sheets, um, you know, started just placing them down to see, you know, how does this work and how do I have to line up these tracks so that I can actually have four, maybe five parallel tracks and you could still see through all of these, you know, that are on, you know, each of them, each tile has a different color on it. And that didn't take as long as I expected. I was thinking, oh, I'm going to run into stuff that was, is impossible. But it actually worked fairly well uh, early on. The biggest issue I had, and this is a good hint to any designers out there, while transparency sheets are great for simulating clear plastic, uh, you cannot have any wind whatsoever in the area you are doing that, or they go everywhere, and they're very hard to pick up from smooth surfaces because they are very, very thin and shiny and slippery. Um, and so there was a lot of messes. Even as I'm doing something, I remember just going ah, like that and tiles are everywhere, all over the place. And I'm like, and then of course you're really going to go ah, because you've just made a mess <laughs> of everything. Uh, but uh, that's, that's how the design for it started was really, you know, how can I do this in a way? And I, I really wanted, I love the idea of transparent tiles. Um, it's something that I've just thought about for a long time. And I was like, I let's see if we can actually build a game around this. And, uh, you know, the, the very first time that I had to print it out there in my sample, it actually looked enough like a subway. And this is a very, very crude sample that I did, you know, for the very first prototype that I was like, oh, you know, if I can get this to, to you know, be a little nicer, gussy it up a little, um, you know, it's going to look like a subway map. And that's kind of what I was was thinking of. I want that the end experience for this when you're when you're done with the game to look at this and go, you know what, that looks like a subway map on a wall in a, in a station someplace. Um, and it kind of does that now. And that's really cool. I see all the pictures posted on VGG of people with that the end of their games. And they have these, you know, completed looking uh, things that look like subway maps. That's really, really cool. Um, so that, that's kind of where it started from, um, was that, that desire to have non-blocking uh, routes on transparent tiles. And uh, once I, you know, talked to a couple of manufacturers and determined that that was doable and while expensive, it wasn't prohibitively expensive. Um, then I set to work on figuring out if I could actually turn into a game as opposed to just a, a fun kind of, you know, oh, I can do this kind of project. Um, and uh, the game kind of, again, took on a life of its own, you know, just, just from that core concept of I want to be able to have people go from one point to another, you know, all, all using the same route without it, it being blocked or, or conflicting. And uh, the game just kind of rose out of that very, very quickly and turned into kind of its, its own thing um, out of that. Yeah, that's great. And those transparent tiles are just one of the coolest components I've ever seen in a game. And they're just so thematic and what they allow you to do from a mechanism standpoint is so cool. And, and like you said, they, they create this really great uh, image at the end of the game. You kind of step back and go, oh, look, it looks, it looks like a subway map. And so so many cool things going on in there. And let's keep talking about components because a lot of these games that you are publishing have very nice components, very interesting components like those tiles. I know in Whistle Stop, you, you've got these really cool uh, these, these pieces, basically the, these uh, hot air balloons and uh, airships and, and things like that. They're these like, nice wooden cutouts. Uh, the board, it's Whistle Mountain, sorry. And uh, Whistle Stop, you've got the board that this like is got this cool shape to it. And it just, I don't know, it's, it's just a cool component by itself, just the, as the board. And so talk to me about that. Obviously, that's more from a publishing standpoint, but I guess you can also design you know, with these ideas in mind for production and, and for the product later. And so tell me about the importance 
of having components like this that stand out, that kind of separate your game from maybe other games in the genre or other games that have that same mechanism. Tell me what you're thinking, both for, as a designer and a publisher, when it comes to these really cool, interesting components. Sure. And I, you know, I think part of it for me is I, I'm not much of an RPG or minis uh, player. Um, that's those games just, they're just not my thing. Um, but I would like games that look that good, you know, that are more Eurocentric um, because that, that is my, my thing. And so, you know, for me as a publisher, what we're always thinking is, oh, we don't have to add minis to make a game look good, but we can make the other components look as good as possible. And with Maglev, uh, they're kept on being all these things that we can do to make the game look better. So the transparent tiles was the start. Uh, we ended up making a board. And of course, this, again, all came from this idea of, well, we want to be able to lay these tiles on top of each other. Well, to do that without them sliding all over the place, because again, they're plastic and it's much more slippery than cardboard. Um, we had to have something to hold them in place. And so we ended up making these station tiles. And each, each uh, you know, the, the game comes with these 14 station tiles that are seven millimeters thick. And for people who aren't up on their millimeters, uh, a typical tile, like a Carcassonne tile, for instance, is like one and a half or two millimeters thick at the most. So seven millimeters is ridiculous. It's, it's just kind of out of control, super, super, super heavy thick. And by using those, you know, by putting those down on the board, they kind of anchored things in place. But that still quite wasn't enough. Things still shifted and moved. So we decided to make the board recessed. And so now all the spots where the stations can go are actually recessed little holes that these stations then fit into. And now when you put your uh, transparent tiles up against the stations, they just slide right into place. And then they won't go anywhere because the stations are actually, you know, in, in the recessed area of the board. So that part... We kind of, you know, again, work through all those steps, kind of figure that out. Um, the next part was uh, passengers, because in pickup and deliver games, and I'm going to use Age of Steam as an example, because yeah, I love Age of Steam and you know, done a bunch of expansion maps for it. And uh, I think it's a great game. But one thing that always bothered me was that game, you were setting up routes to sell things. You were never actually taking goods from one location to another. You were instead basically saying, you know what, I want to own this route that goes from, you know, Cleveland to Pittsburgh or whatever. Uh, and it was, it would have been more satisfying to me to have you actually pick up your goods, you know, your coal in Pittsburgh and go take it to, to Cleveland or whatever and deliver it there. But that, it, it really, it wasn't, it's not a pick up and deliver game. It's actually a set up your routes game, um, you know, in that, in that aspect. And I really like the idea of, I want to physically pick something up, put it in my train and have my train move along and then have it, my train deliver that. And so with a subway, you could of course you can do that with people. And so, uh, uh, came up with, of course, passengers. And we tried with meeples and, you know, blocks and all sorts of different things. And then as I'm doing that, I'm thinking, well, gee, how big does this train have to be for that to fit? So we ended up, the, the way the passengers look is a result of um, basically the size of the trains that we ended up using. We wanted to get at least four of those passengers in a train. They had to fit in a train. The train had to look kind of like a train, not just a box, you know, that's that you're sticking things into. And we had to fit at least four of those trains on a hex. And so uh, basically everything came down to kind of this, like how, how, uh, what's the smallest we can make the passengers. And once we decide, okay, this is really as small as we can make them and still be comfortable with them without being tiny and just kind of weird looking. Uh, and then the train size came up from that. And then the tile size came up from the train size of have, being able to fit four of them on a tile. And the board size was then of course, you know, because you have wherever the hexes are located on the board, the board size was a result of how big the hexes were. And so that it was all interconnected and linked together in a very, very interesting way that I've never kind of experienced before. Because a lot of times when you're 
uh, as the publishing side, when you're putting the game together, they're making a lot of choices. Like, well, how big do I, the board do I want it to be? You know, does it have to be to take up the whole table or can it be half the table size or whatever? And in this particular case, a lot of those decisions were kind of made once I, I picked one thing, which in this case was the little tiny passengers, uh, everything else had to fall into place. And that also determined like, well, how big can the board be? If we want to have the, the box be the same standard ticket to ride size box, which is what we normally publish for our big box games, the board can only be so big because, you know, we could have it in probably four, maybe six pieces. It's, it ended up being four pieces. Um, and so the board could only be so large to be able to fit into that box with the hexes being as big as they were. Um, and that actually was decided early on before a lot of the other rules were in place. And it actually helped to design the game because of these limitations that I had kind of given myself as to how this could all possibly work. And um, yeah, Maglev just ended up being designed, like I said, it kind of designed itself in a lot of ways. You know, I put a couple of parameters in place and then everything else that had I had to do kind of went along with it until uh, the game was done. So... Right. And it's so important to note here that a lot of times these decisions are made based on usability and based on manufacturing, based on the limits of how big certain things can be or how expensive they're going to be. And so you have to figure some workarounds and things like that. I know for a game I've been working on for a very long time called Robomon. Uh, originally, I had this this map system set up where you would do little Robomon battles and you would have different terrain. You put trees out and you put rocks and ponds and things like that that the player, you know, you're going to have to figure out tactically how that's going to affect your, your battle each time. And every time you have a new battle, you'd have to put out different terrain and stuff like that. And the way it would work is you'd go through the adventure book and whenever you ran into a battle, it would kind of give you a little map and you'd pull out your battle map and you'd kind of, okay, here's the tree. It goes on this space and here's the rocks that ah. go here. And it worked really well for creating some dynamic, interesting battles. That way, every battle is a little bit different. You know, always having to figure out new things and new ways to kind of work around whatever space you're in. But the problem was, it took so long to figure out, okay, where does the tree go? Where does the pond go? And you had to like set this thing up. But then the battle doesn't, it's only like an eight-ish minute battle. And so it took you two minutes to set up an eight-minute battle. And it's like, well, that doesn't make sense from a time standpoint. And so from a usability uh, you know, angle, it, it's like, okay, let me do something different. And so what I started doing was putting the battle maps inside the adventure book. It's it's spiral bound, uh, and so it lays flat. And then when you run into a battle, you literally open up the battle map, and the trees are there, and the right pond's there. already there. Exactly, and then you're you're like right into the battle. And so there's no more setup. You're, you're just jumping right in, and it's like, okay, this makes more sense. And so not only is that more user-friendly, but also it's cheaper. I'm not having to have as near as much chipboard for all the terrain oh, yeah. tiles and all the different things. And so it's it's cheaper too. And so I feel like, and again, that's that's something I figured out after taking several weeks off from the game and coming back and looking at it and go, oh, okay, here's how I fix this problem. Uh, but again, from a, a publishing standpoint, manufacturing, usability, product standpoint, so many cool ideas can come from the limitations either on trying to save players time or save money uh, or both, right? And so I think that's important to note. Do you have any other like little anecdotes or anything you've run into with your games, like from that same uh, standpoint? No, I, I just think it's it's really interesting when I look back at Seismic, the the, the very first game again. I, I didn't publish it, but it was it was my design, and it's I really had at that point no limitations. I mean, there was just tiles that you lay, and they could go anywhere you wanted to. There were fewer limitations, and then to think that fifteen plus years later. I'm designing a game that starts with these really strict limitations. I mean, like I said, I couldn't make the board any bigger. I mean, everything had to be a certain size and just it's, it was really weird, but at the same time, it really, this putting yourself in a box like that can really help that design process. Um, and I think that the game is so much better than if it was, you know, it could have been just free form 
um, tiles on, on a table. You know, you just, you're just putting your tiles down. They just go as big as they can go, as big as your table is or whatever. Um, and I'm sure it would have been interesting. Um, but I don't think it would have been as compelling because it didn't have those limitations that I had, you know, kind of given myself before I started the, the, the true design process of actually how the game would actually work. Yeah, that's a really good point. All right, let's shift gears and talk about scoring. How do you figure out the scoring system? How do you figure out what is going to get you points, what's not, how many points you're going to get, how do you balance these things? Like, Tell me what you're thinking when you're designing one of these games or publishing one of these games when it comes to how, how players score and how they ultimately win the game. I think this ends up being one of the more difficult things that any designer has to do. I mean, sometimes it may come naturally. But I think to, to actually get a game balanced well so that a player has real choices and, you know, depending on how much time, effort they spend in one direction, they'll get X number of points and they spend the same amount of time and effort in another direction. They may get the same or less or, or more points because of the decisions that they're making, um, you know, and w- with, without making it so point salady that, well, everything you do gets your point, you know, so it doesn't really matter what you do. You're still getting points all over the place that is that is absolutely super challenging um i i tend to want to um skew down to the fewest possible um points for everything uh whistle mountain is a great example um the original whistle mountain prototype that scott and luke provided i think it was something this is there's so many ways you score in that game already but one of the things they had was it was i think it was like two points for every um uh adjacent thing that uh, you're uh, when, when you put a new um, scaffold in every adjacent line that you had there was was two points and what that ended up doing is it made your games you know 400 500 points typically and uh i didn't realize at the time but it seemed like a lot of things had kind of gone from that so that they they determined their point values based on on that you know that well, well they're, they're going to get six eight ten twelve points here so you should get this much for this other thing and so everything just ballooned up when we just took that down to one point for those we could scale everything else down by half, and now we had a game that you're getting, you know, someone who does really, really well tend to do close to 200 points maybe at, at the most, which is a little more reasonable, a little, a little easier to manage. But a lot of that still has to do a lot with with balancing and testing and kind of, uh, you know, a lot of it is feel. You know, I, I have spreadsheets, and I do a lot of fun things with spreadsheets to try to figure out, you know, how well things go. That's, you know, Castles and Suburbia are great games for spreadsheeting to say okay well you know you put this next to this it should be this many points and mathematically it works that way but just sometimes math- mathematically it works that way is not how it feels good to a gamer it feels wrong and to do something uh, like that and so a lot of times it's it's play testing and watching how people are reacting to you know what they're doing and how they're getting points and, and how things are working but uh, I'll, I'll tell you that it's uh, I'm working on a game right now where scoring is in the way too high range uh, and it has been a constant struggle to figure out how to bring that down overall. So it's it's not just this, this math exercise for people that they can focus on playing and not having to add or how much you know how much is this is this thirty five points better than this thirty two points over here is it in, or and trying to figure all that out ahead of time. Um, it's it's a lot easier to figure out is six points better than five versus thirty six better than thirty. Um, and so you know that trying to keep that in your head and and work on something. Um, with, with scoring, I think is, is always incredibly challenging. Right. Another thing to keep in mind, not only the counting and just the, the mathematics that you have to go into, you know, counting up to 500 points, 600 points, 1,000 points, something like that, but also just the, the way players feel at the end of the game when they lose. 
because losing by 20 feels a little better than losing by 200, yeah. even though the math behind it might be the exact same. Yeah. It just depends on, you know, and so you, you might not want to play again. If you just got beaten by 200 points versus 20, you're like, oh, okay, I, I think I can figure out a way to get 21 more points next game and beat you, even though if that's not actually true. <laughs> like even if the math behind it doesn't line up with that. So I think that's also something to, uh, to understand just from, yeah. You know, if, if you play teach you, it's a thousand point game, but it's really a 200 point game because you can't score less than five points in one direction or another. Um, so, you know, it j- just happens to be easier to do the math with lo- the, the cards that are worth five and the cards that are 25 and 20 and, or then 10, I mean, uh, than it would be if we made all the fives one and all the, you know, kings and tens two. That would be weird. So it does it this way, but a thousand points seems like a lot, but it's really not that much. It's really 200 points is really what you're working with in a game like that. Um, but in that particular case, it actually works. A thousand's a really nice round number to get to. Um, and getting 10 points for a 10 makes a lot of sense. Five points for a five makes a lot of sense. The other numbers are all kind of arbitrary. But if you did it the other way, um, like I said, like one point for a five and, and two points for a 10, that would feel really weird and would be very unsatisfying and frustrating probably to play and remember. Um, so I think a lot of that stuff has to do with it's, you know, I don't know with Urs who designed the game, how much playtesting that he did in terms of scoring, but you have to think that there was enough done with that sort of thing, that that was a very comfortable number that that thousand point threshold was the right game. end. and yes, it can mean a 45 minute game or it can mean a two and a half hour game sometimes, but it was still, that was the right number to get to. And that all the points in between there, um, you know, as they're working out what, well, what's a teacher worth? That's worth a hundred versus 200. Um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it's really interesting. Right. And as you mentioned a moment ago, a lot of it really just comes down to feel, how the players feel about the way uh, points are being scored. For instance, if you take four turns to do some really cool route or something like that and you get 10 points and then somebody else does something in two turns and they get eight or nine points, it's like, well, hold on, this this feels weird. Like, mm-hmm. why, why is this mismatched? Like that, and so I guess a lot of that just comes down to playtesting, though, and just kind of figuring out, okay, this is what players are doing, and all that. So let's talk about playtesting. What are some things you're looking for? What are some things that you're taking notes about as far as route building games when you're doing uh, playtesting? You know, and, and I I don't know if I could limit it to just route building. I think just in general, it's it's playtesting. It's just watching watching people's faces, watching how they're responding to things, watching what players look like when they watch other people play. Um, a lot of that ends up being so important, um, just kind of that, that overall feel of what they're doing. And, you know, it's not even as simple as just uh, looking at a phone or uh, they seem distracted. It's, it's really, you know, how much, uh, how engaged are they and how, how, much, how excited are they when something, when they do something that, uh, you know, that they figure out or they come up with that, like those cool combos and whistle stop. Um, how much does that actually come through? You know, to them emotionally, and they have that that big aha moment. And so, uh, for for route building, that's the same sort of thing. Like when they when they actually connect something, you know, in Maglev, when we're watching people do play testing, um, when they actually they're the first ones to build a station of a certain type. You could just see on their faces that they're doing this math of, you know, what these other players. I was why I'm looking at their boards. They're not going to be able to deliver these really really valuable passengers for three or four turns, they're all mine. I've got this. And there's like this, this self-confidence that comes over them as, as suddenly because they were, they got to do this thing before anyone else. And they know that they kind of own that for a bunch of turns. 
And uh, that sort of a feeling is really, really good. As long as you can, you can have that and make sure that it's doled out you know, fairly, that that same person doesn't, as a result of that, get a whole bunch of other stuff and then just you know, goes on to crush the other players. But having those, those sorts of moments and having those sorts of, of feelings during playtesting means that I think you're on to something. Uh, when people are, are that invested and that excited and even when they're trying to hide that sort of thing, which is really interesting because, you know, as a, as a designer, a lot of times you're watching, you're, you, know, you know what they're, you, you know what they should do and you know what they, they do do and, and why they're doing something. But you can see on their faces, are they trying to hide this? They don't want to let people know like, like how awesome they, they've just made this incredible mood and they're just sitting there going, oh, I'm not going to act too, too secure here because I don't want them to know that I am, I'm about to uh, do something pretty amazing right now. Um, and so I think that's just, Observing the players um, and their playtesting, observing the players more than the game, I think is probably one of the keys for, for playtesting. Um, as much playtest as possible, of course, and as many people as you could possibly do that don't know you and don't care what you think, um, or, they, or that uh, you won't care what they think, at least they think that. Um, but uh, watching their reactions just as they're playing, uh, I think you get so much out of that. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, Ted, this has been excellent. Closing thoughts. What would you tell somebody who is designing a route building game or maybe they're listening to this and they're like, oh, I've got an idea for one. What would you tell those folks? I, I would say play as many different route building games as possible. Um, get a feel for what, what's out there, what, what particular aspects of route building really you know, appeal to you and they're exciting. And that whole blocking versus not blocking sort of thing, um, the you know, making long stretches of, of road or track or a path or whatever it is, uh, distances, if that's exciting, you know, try and figure out how to incorporate that uh, into a game. Just whatever, you know, really gets you excited about whether it's route building or really anything else. That's that's what I think you have to focus on. Like I said, you know, that whole idea of, you know, if I can do transparent tiles and have people do simultaneous routes here, this will be awesome. I'm not sure exactly what it will be, but it will be awesome. I was so excited about that that I was able to develop the rest of Maglev Metro as a result. And I think that's that that passion that you have for something. And if, if you like route building and you like that sort of thing, if there's one particular aspect of that, either that you don't see that you're like, oh, I wish they would have done this or whatever, or that, oh, they did this. And I, I think we could do it even better Then just, you know, laser focus on that. And uh, I think games end up growing out of those those sorts of uh, that, that sort of passion. Definitely. Well, hey, you've always got some cool things cooking up over there at Bezier Games. So what are some things that people can look forward to? Where can they find them? All that. Oh, well, we have. We've just announced um, actually new expansion maps for Maglev Metro. So we have all sorts of things coming up. We have one called um, Mechs and Monorails. Uh, Mechs 1, you get big giant robots. Instead of the regular robots that help you with your, your engines, you get these big giant robots that give you special abilities. Uh, monorails let you chain trains together around an amusement park. Uh, there's some other ones. There's one called Moon Bases and Mars that lets you do things because of the lack of gravity and other special aspects of those. London and Paris. Paris is unique because it simulates the uh, kind of the ongoing scheduled strike situation that they have in Paris, where they schedule um, uh, metro strikes uh, way ahead of time so people know that you can't use the metro for this day because everyone's going to be on strike, which seems really weird. But we've put that actually into the game, which is really a lot of a lot of fun. So we've got that going on. Um, we uh, just did a Kickstarter for a game called Sink or Swim, which is a, our first co-op game where uh, people are doing synchronized swimming. And they were actually working on synchronized swimming routines uh, together. And as a team, you're trying to be as efficient and successful and accurate as possible. And uh, the better you do, the faster you go, the, the higher you're going to end up scoring. That's kind of cool. Um, and then, um, yeah, 
we have a bunch of other little things coming. Um, we just are, um, uh, Castles Collector's Edition should be out within a few months. Um, that we're very, very excited about. That's got all sorts of really, really nice bling added to uh, Castles and fantastic art. Awesome. Well, Ted, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with bringing all those other cool things to market. I know with shipping and, and craziness going on in the world, that is no small task. So good luck with that and uh, everything else you got going on right now. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?